The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. You know the cliche? Somebody needs no introduction. This isn't a cliche. I don't even have to do an introduction. Ruth Harris, who is um, professor of history in Trinity College Dublin, is chairing this session. I'm delighted that she's given up Thanksgiving to do this. Thank you, Ruth, for that here. Um, but she's more than capable of introducing herself and the speakers. Uh, so the the session now we have we have two papers and the I'll just introduce the speakers one by one as they come to give their papers. So the first uh, speaker is Dr. Annalie Marty, who is um, a lecturer at the Dundalk Institute of Technology. She received her PhD from NUI Galway and her research for the PhD and subsequently has been very concerned with maps. Uh, she has worked on several um, historical uh, cartography projects as well as uh, working on the 1641 Depositions Project and working on the Cloth Workers Company in London, uh, but again, especially work on maps and has uh, published Mapping Ireland circa 1550 to 1636, a catalog of the manuscript maps of Ireland. And she is going to be speaking to us now on the Cecils and the mapping of early modern Ireland. Thank you very much for the introduction and thank you to Kieran um, for the invitation to speak here today. Um, I'm going to be talking about the Cecils and mapping in Ireland, which is a little bit different to what my the initial programme may say. Um, I'm actually going to be covering um, two Cecils, I hope you can see that. So as someone who works on the history of cartography in Ireland, I've always been keenly aware of the influence of Sir William Cecil, later Lord Burnley in particular, on the administrative history of the early modern Isles. Um, the state papers, of course, as we've heard this morning, team with his correspondence, which provides evidence of his networks across early modern Europe. Um, and as an avid correspondent, Cecil, for me, becomes very much part of the period I work in and the area I work in because he becomes the annotator, the recipient, and quite often the creator of obviously multiple documents relating to Ireland, which includes maps. In the most basic guides, these documents, of course, would have been letters to and from key administrators. Yet, as England's relationship with Ireland began to change, probably from around the 1550s, so to speak, from one of more of association to a more cemented policy of subjugation and plantation, the nature of that correspondence changed to include more surveys. And more interestingly, as I said, for my purposes, the maps of the lands that began to fall into crown control. Many commentators in particular have noted um, Cecil's, uh, I suppose, focus on geographical knowledge within his work, particularly um, geographical knowledge that helped to ensure England's success in the plantation process. Skelton, for example, wrote, and I quote, in his understanding of the geographical facts which govern policy, decision and action, abroad no less than at home, he was unsurpassed and possibly unequaled by any other statesman or administrator of his time. Such emphasis on geography led Cecil to become one of early modern Europe's most prolific map users. 
with an acknowledgement that he was quite possibly, and I quote, the most cartographically minded statesman of his time. His enthusiasm for maps evidently also rubbed off on his son, um, Sir Robert Cecil, who also continued to develop the, mark, the map portfolios of the family um, through his tenures. And we know that uh, Robert Cecil in particular um, was very different to his father in his map collecting, um, being um, much more interested in the more refined map than the more rudimentary map that his father would have used. Again, Skelton and Summerson um, noted this when they catalogued the materials at Hatfield, suggesting that everything that was sent to William Cecil was more or less preserved, um, enabling him quite often to request new maps, but also to consult from a wide selection of materials um, that he held within his own records during crisis points. Robert, however, tended, um, in contrast, to commission maps from more professional cartographers, with his influence ensuring that mapping in Ireland began, and I quote, to exhibit coordination and continuity. Robert's tenure coincided with increased mapping endeavours as a whole in Ireland, particularly during the early years of the Ulster Plantation, giving rise um, for, to some of the most beautiful large-scale surveys um, of the Ashita lands on a systematic basis. So in my paper today, I want to look at both the Cecils and their roles really in the mapping of Ireland. I'm going to obviously begin kind of chronologically with um, Sir William Cecil's surviving map collections, focusing on his use of maps. And I want to look at those kind of three roles that he always fulfilled, which was really as an annotator of maps, a recipient of maps, and then in turn a creator of maps, which is probably his least known role, I suppose. And then I'm going to move on to Robert um, to look at some of the materials he began to commission for um, Ireland as well. So here they are. I think we've seen some of these pictures already today. But the extent, um, of course, of William Cecil's interest in cartography as an administrative tool has been alluded to um, by many scholars over the years. And we can see the evidence of that right across both the state and his private correspondence, which contain evidence of, of course, England's growing reach, in particular here in Ireland um, and, and elsewhere. Um, the map historian J.B. Harley, for example, has estimated that the collection um, of William Cecil probably holds between two to three hundred manuscripts by the late 16th century, while Skelton and Summerson, and most recently John Andrews and I, catalogued and wrote about the maps um, in his own personal mapping agendas, particularly those that he created more or less as sketch maps um, to help him in his endeavours. So every once in a while we come across something else that we can associate as part of Burley's work. Skelton and Summerson note that his collection can be adjudged to contain multiple groups of maps and plans. These include those that he would have received as a private individual, some of which we know he probably purchased while a lot of others he would have received as gifts. And these prepared him, of course, for public business um, and would have been quite often placed within the state paper collections um, or kept for his own personal use. Barber notes that when Burley felt maps were particularly informative, they were often incorporated into atlases. And we know that he would have done this in particular and um, with very ornate maps like Noel's uh, Maps of the British Isles. The Irish maps, never made their way, however, into his bigger atlases. He always kept them more separate. And by 1598, um, we know that he had two map books of Ireland, but, um, one which was called the Book of Maps of Ireland in large, and the other which was called the Book of Maps of Ireland in color. 
very simple, um, but they were very rudimentary atlases. And many of those maps eventually filtered into the state paper collections. But today, when we go looking for them, of course, they're not all there um, because many of them were borrowed over time, uh, never to be returned and are now scattered across multiple archives in Britain and Ireland. The collections that would now include maps associated with Lord Burley are, of course, his own private papers at Hatfield House, the state papers at Kew, the Cotton Collection at the British Library, the Hardyman Atlas um, across the way here in Trinity, and the Dartmouth Collection at Greenwich. Many of the family collections grew further again, of course, under Sir Robert's term of office. Um, so we know that the papers at Hatfield perhaps offer quite a unique view um, in terms of the time frame that we're looking at, because of course we can see the materials both father and son were using in the late 16th and into the early 17th century. So for many of William Cecil's maps, of course, are really quite um, beautiful ornate maps that are, are probably quite famous within um, early modern Irish history. We would see a lot of them replicated um, in sort of books from time to time. But those maps as a whole very much give us knowledge um, of what way, I suppose, Sir William Cecil would have been using maps. And we know that many of those maps came both within surveys and, and also within daily correspondence with officials. We know that at the very same time that Burley was creating a lot of these map collections, um, that there was a general upsurge, as Peter Barber has described, of map consciousness, and that that gave rise to an increased use in maps for illuminating problems. Christopher McGinn similarly notes that for Ireland, those maps not only served, and I quote, as an effective administrative and military tool, but also provided him with a visual representation of Ireland to complement his swelling correspondence and growing intellectual undertaking of politics and society in the kingdom. So that Cecil's early use of maps, therefore, were quite, um, were very much for that purpose. And we can see it right across the Irish collections. In their very earliest guise, we know that he used maps quite often as an illustrative means to understand the basic geography of the country. I can only imagine what it must have been like to be getting correspondence from, uh, you know, people as we heard this morning across Ireland mentioning locations that would have been so unknown to him um, in terms of their actual physical location. And we know that he would have used them quite often um, to help him to understand that, but also to understand lands um, that England would have been most recently engaged in battle. Um, 21 separate maps in the Irish collections, for example, bear his annotations showing that he very much actively used them in his understanding of his, for his day-to-day -day administration. One, of course, of the most famous maps um, of Ireland um, is this John Gold map from 1567, and it actually all bears his annotations. We've no specific information on its commission, um, but we do know, of course, that it must have been very much aimed towards a royal audience on the basis that, of course, we have English arms and um, the Irish harp seal um, on the map. In turn, um, we know that the large inscription, um, which is down in the bottom corner, tells us a little bit more about why it was possibly being made because it focuses on the Irish Midlands. So the date of 1567 in the Irish Midlands gives the hint that this is, of course, an area that the Crown is engaged in constant um, skirmishes with, with and where the Crown is, of course, um, in the throes of um, the first um, main plantation in Ireland. The map 
to me becomes very much almost a microcosm of a lot of detail about mid 16th century Ireland, because of course it has the coats of arms um, showing that kind of transition in the Irish towards more ang anglicized um, landscape. But it also includes coats of arms and um, marking the lands of key Anglo-Irish families. There are Galagath soldiers depicted up in Ulster. Um, and there are also inscriptions noting lands of the Gaelic Irish across the country. <coughs> as a map, as someone who comes from a geography and history background, I'd look at it and go, not very geographically accurate. Um, we have a very elongated lock urn, for example, here. On my own point of Donegal is literally a box, which was quite common at that point in time. But it is um, very, very interesting in terms of giving us knowledge about what England would have known of Ireland at the time, which of course is mainly the east coast of Ireland and also parts of the south of Ireland. But there's little doubt that a map like this, of course, despite those kind of geographical inaccuracies, would have been really quite useful to someone like Burley, who was just trying to get a view of where things were located, particularly those families that he kept hearing about. And his annotations suggest that that's exactly the type of thing he was using it for, because within the map, for example, he's actually annotating family names and also key locations um, that he is just literally being engaged with, um, for example, up here in County Antrim. In turn, Cecil was also focusing on areas where England had been recently engaged within the collection as a whole. This particular map of Wicklow and Ferns is quite interesting, for example, because it shows how through annotation we can see his contemporary preoccupations, particularly with the O'Toole's and the O'Burns. Um, you can clearly see his very distinct hand, for example, underneath their names here. And this is interesting because this particular map dates to 1579, with the endorsement noting um, that it is contemporary with the division of the Shires of Ireland mainly made by Sir Deputy Walter Jury, Knight, Lord Justice in Ireland, and County Wicklow and Ferns. So contemporary with that process of shiring and the beginning of the settlement um, of English counties in Ireland. The map annotations continue. If we got him today looking at this in an archive, we'd probably be dragging him away with the pen saying stop. But actually, <laughs> for me, it's a gold mine. We know that during the Munster plantation in particular, of course, Burley was really active in his correspondence in Ireland. Um, and he became really active in the use um, of maps as well. Um, the Munster plantation was probably the first to employ surveyors. It employed two surveyors within their commission team. But with two people covering what turned out to be a vast area of land, of course, the records show that maps were very slow to emerge. What we have are contemporary maps that we're not quite sure where some of them have come from. Um, for example, this one from 1586, very contemporary with the plantation, the very beginnings of it, but we don't know who made it or why, um, why in a sense it was made, but we do know that it ends up in the state papers by the reference number and its current location, and that it was used by Burley by the fact that his handwriting is on it again. Um, the map um, is dated the 17th of June, 1586, and quite simply, it has an endorsement called the Plat of the Attainted Lands and how the same is allotted to the undertakers. So very much a plan to show where those new settlers are going to live. It's a, really, a relatively simple pen and ink drawing. Um, nothing about it would say, stick me up on your wall, a very ornate map. Um, but it, again, very much showcases um, that rudimentary outline of the Munster seacoast, 
including rivers and islands, um, as well as some human content, because we can make out, for example, some of the major settlements um, at the time, particularly the coastal times, um, which would have been very familiar um, to any um, English correspondent of the day. But the map bears witness to that beginning of the visualization of plantation particularly where we look, for example, at the development of the plantation seigneuries as they were known for the Munster Estates. Those seigneuries were distinguished on the map um, with the county name being inscribed and the number of seigneuries that were going to be allotted in that county and included there. And right below those, um, in Burley's own hand, we begin to see the names of the people who are actually going to be allotted into those areas. So in my mind, I can see almost Burley sitting at his desk, maybe with correspondence coming in about the plantation. And he's there literally annotating the map, um, placing the individual undertakers fresh off the press, so to speak, as they were being granted lands in the Munster plantation. So in doing so, um, and he very much adds a tangible value to the map in terms of give, giving us that evidence of how he was using it as a piece of visual, visual apparatus for the Munster Plantation. But not all the maps were like this, of course. We do see much more colorful and more beautiful maps also emerging. And he became the recipient of quite spectacular maps from within that um, category. Quite often these maps were unsolicited. Burley obviously became known as someone who liked maps, and um, particularly to understand the landscape. And some of the early maps that, that are sent to Burley, for example, very much seem to be focusing in in that area of the changing political geography. Um, Francis Jobson, for example, in the late 1580s, became probably one of the foremost producers of maps in the Munster area. Um, Jobson was one of the original commissioners, didn't quite produce the maps he was supposed to probably as he went along, but he did produce um, a set and series really of very spectacular provincial maps of Munster, which now survive in the National Maritime Museum and in the National Library in Dublin and here in Trinity College in Dublin. The one here in Trinity is very, very different to all the others in that unlike the others, which literally are just a map, this one includes a long inscription, which tells us a little bit more about why it's being made and why in particular it's being sent to Burley. Um, it's smaller and less ornate representation of the province, but it's the only one that's specifically addressed to Burley as well. Along each side, for example, um, the long tract directs it to him, to the right honourable, the Lord Burley, Lord High Treasurer of England. And he continues, for example, to outline his objective. And I quote, I present unto your Lordship in this plot, a brief description of such parcels of Her Highness's lands as I did survey and measure. And to know the smallness hereof will not permit me to set down the just proportions of every particular with his right angles, yet your lordship may hereby behold how Her Majesty's lands do lie dispersed in the said province, and how they butt and abound the one, um, the one scenery with the other. Now, as I've mentioned, no um, distinct commission survives for this map, but it's clear that Jobson is someone who recognised Burley as someone who was an administrator, who was cartographically conscious. And at the time, Jobson was continuously writing letters for more employment, as were a lot of surveyors. So he saw an opportunity here, perhaps, to receive um, commissions into the future. The objective 
was made even further um, in the fact that Jobson uses a very flattering tone, um, in particular at the end of the inscription, when he notes um, and comments directly at Burley, thus presuming onto your Lord's accustomed wisdom and clemency, which always hath more respect to the well-willing mind than to the value of the thing, most humbly craving your honour, favour to be extended towards me, for the allowance of my entertainment for the said service whereof as yet I have received never a penny, and I shall daily pray for your Lord's long and prosperous health and happy felicity. So as a tool, obviously, of understanding the, cart the cartographer's mind, this is quite interesting, and um, you can see that it is the next employment, but as a tool for plantation administration, to me, this map truly captures that evolving plantation landscape in the province. But maps continued, of course, to emerge from Ireland um, that uh, very much suggested his wider Irish interests. And when we look in particular at the collection um, at Hatfield, for example, we can see that obviously the things that were preoccupying him were, of course, um, the college we stand in. This is the very famous image, for example, of Trinity College in Dublin, which survives at Hatfield House, unsurprisingly, given Burley's um, connection to the institution. Again, that would have been a very early plan for Front Square, um, not the Front Square, of course, that we see today. Um, it's much bigger, um, but it gives you a sense that the college structures, uh, of the college structures and how they were expected to emerge. Similarly, we can see that he was also receiving maps um, to do with military matters. And this particular map um, of Duncanon Fort, which is part of several Duncanon maps um, that survived for early modern Ireland, um, survives at Hatfield. Um, again, it's actually probably the least ornate, but one of the bigger ones um, of Duncanon. Um, and the date of it is quite interesting because it's dated from 1587, um, giving, of course, its very strong proximity and to the beginning of the Armada, and perhaps offering, offering a reasoning for its production um, as concerns were growing to protect ports um, across um, the English, the British Isles in general. Again, Burley, of course, received these maps, but we also know that Burley was creating his own. Um, in the Irish collections, for example, we have two maps which were drawn directly by himself. Um, these survive within the state papers, of course, in the National Archives, and are probably less known because they've not been extracted like many of the other maps from their original location. This one is a, is a relatively well-known rendering of the area on the banks of the Shannon, um, where he inscribes the names um, of what are essentially the stopping points, um, as John Anders and I were noting previously, and um, that were occupied by the rebellious sons of the Earl of Clan Rickard as they retreated back from Dublin to Connacht. Um, the map shows, for example, the river and the bridge of Athlone, um, naming a number of places, of course, in the vicinity. But what's more interesting is that Burley um, created a map like this, which you can actually determine to be a map. Yet he also liked to draw maps that are more akin to what near you might think of as a doodle. Um, I happened to be in the National Archives a few years ago, looking for something completely different when I came across this and I thought that looks like somebody scrolled something and I started looking at it a bit more closely, I recognized the hand immediately as Burley and then recognized actually it's Burley drawing the map of Ireland, um, almost like a mind map um, that you would draw if you were, um, if you were working um, 
at something at, at a given point in time. In my mind, he was obviously working on correspondence um, and was possibly working through some of the things that were happening in Ireland. Um, it's attached to a letter which is completely unrelated. The correspondence actually um, is a, a correspondence from Charles Egerton, who was the constable of Carrick Fergus. And it seems that literally Burley was working through his correspondence on that day and drew a map on the back of this to figure out where all the places were to locate um, everything that he was looking at. It's only about 16 by 17 centimetres, so really quite small. And he gives a very rude, um, and rudimentary outline of the north and the east coast in the main. There's no detail really on it of the physical landscape beyond the fact that he actually includes um, an outline of Loch Urn and the river bank. Of course, there's no attempt to represent scale. Um, and basically, Connacht and Munster are just the big um, sort of circles that you can see literally going, there's Connacht, there's Munster. Um, but it's really, really quite interesting because it tells us a little bit about the things that were preoccupying his mind at the time. 1594, he's mentioning people like the O'Donnells and the Earl of Tyrone here. Um, and we know that it must be very much reflecting his recent concerns. Um, we know that those would have related to the soon-to-be departure of Sir William Fitzwilliam as Lord Deputy. And in his correspondence in particular for that month, Fitzwilliam was spending a lot of time updating Burley on all of the contemporary issues that were going on in Ireland, particularly as military commanders and officials from across the north of Ireland were reporting back on their concerns. So, of course, this was the opening of the Nine Years' War. So for Burley, he was interested in locating some of the people he was hearing about physically within the landscape. He also includes Drogheda and Dundalk, which would have been considered, of course, quite vulnerable locations and therefore worthy of including on the map at the time. So to me, when I find this, I got really quite excited because I was looking at the date and I was looking at what's he including and I was thinking about it. I didn't realize that no one had ever seen it before. Um, so it was really unusual. Um, and I began to think, well, there's probably more out there. So I'd encourage you, if you're going through the state papers, to keep an eye out. Um, but to me, it serves very much to acknowledge not just the belief in maps um, as administrative aids, um, but also that we know that Burley had a familiarity with Ireland um, well enough that he could pretty much locate um, everything within its relative geographic confines. Um, of course, it's not made for public consumption. It would probably be something that you or I would throw in the bin today, but it is something that obviously tells us how Ireland's geography was weighing on Burley's mind as he was dealing with more and more concerns in the 1590s. So if we think about Burley and then we contrast him to what comes next, which is the work um, that was being produced for his son, Sir Robert Cox, or Sir Robert Cecil, we begin to see the kind of change within Irish mapping towards more systematic and skilled mapping endeavours. Evidence of Sir Robert Cecil's reliance on maps is offered by the many dedications of maps to him and the letters being sent to him. He seems to have inherited the cartographic foresight of his father, with maps relating to military and settlement matters in particular being offered to him on multiple occasions. These often formed parts of big map groups and surveys rather than being presented just as individual maps, which would have been more akin to what his father would have received. Amongst the earliest maps from um, his, uh, his, his roles would have been, for example, this particular set, 
which is a set of maps that were sent from Sir Henry Docker's campaign at Derry. Um, and they survive in the National Archives in London and also actually up the road here in the National Library. This first map, for example, is a map that shows the site and situation of Derry. Um, very much showing clearly along the River Foyle, but also in the context of other fortifications that were being built at that point in time in Ulster, which of course was when England was again using a three-pronged attack essentially to try to quell the rising tide um, of war in the province. The plan was sent to uh, Cecil by Captain Humphrey Covert, who was the muster master in Loch Foyle in December 1600. And it very much places, as I said, Derry within the River, river Foyle. And then in turn, also as a set of maps provides them with an even closer view of that new fortification at, at the Derry, as it was called. This particular map was, um, shows quite a lot of um, interesting information about that early settlement, which, did, which didn't survive into the plantation period. It's a simple pen and ink drawing, as you can tell, but it does have a very, um, very detailed legend inscribed on the map, which helps us understand um, what was going on within the particular uh, map and within the fort at the time. The early settlement, as you can see, developed on what would have been an island um, in the foil at the time. And um, just outside the city walls, the modern, um, more modern city walls um, today. Um, and we know that it was very much one of the early forts in Ireland that would have been built in a pseudo kind of Trafalian style. Um, we can see that it also it includes, for example, one of the representations of the Round Tower at Derry, um, which a lot of archaeologists have spent many years trying to find the base of um, in the landscape of the, the modern city. But it shows us that Docker was using sort of a lot of early military, uh, new military styles in the province to create a very strong um, fortification and um, to help him really to settle into what would have been a fairly tense um, environment um, uh, uh, on the banks of the foil at the time. A very small sort of uh, town was beginning to develop as well in the outskirts with other fortifications, for example, supporting uh, the new settlement um, off the dairy at that point. Again, um, what's interesting for someone who actually grew up relatively close to this city um, is the representation as well of the landscape around it. Um, of course, we're all familiar with uh, areas like the bog site in, in the modern city. And again, those bog and hill-like um, features on the map indicate that very strong um, local geography of the region. So it seems that Dakra would have been commissioning those maps for a number of reasons at the time and sending them to Cecil equally for a number of reasons. They were vital, of course, reconnaissance tools to understand what was happening in Ulster a very remote landscape far, far away from London. Um, they very much showed, for example, a successful development. If you were looking at that as an administrator in, in London, you'd probably go, look, great, what is he, what he, what he, what, that's what he's created already in that landscape. So he was constantly trying to garner favour. And we know that by sending them to Cecil in particular, he was probably hoping that if things progressed and there might have been a plantation, he might have been lucky and been given some lands in it. So it's probable in a sense that he was thinking um, that through as he was using the target audience to send them back to. But it's also probable that these maps were part of a request from all um, of the, the different forces in Ulster at the time, because they're contemporary with an even more beautiful set of maps 
that are now um, in the National Library here in Dublin, but which would have been part of the state collections to begin with. Um, and these are Richard Bartlett's maps, um, which followed Lord Mountjoy's forces in the southern part of Ulster, in the southeast of Ulster, quite close to where I currently live, um, here through the Moira Pass in particular. So Salisbury's focus on maps um, becomes more and more evident, of course, as time progresses, and particularly as we begin to move towards plantation and Ulster. In 1608, for example, he's beginning to receive maps from some of the fairly big named uh, map makers of the day. Um, John Norden, for example, was one of England's foremost and most accomplished cartographers in the late 16th and early 17th century. He was well known in cartographic circles um, through his publication of the Speculum Britanniae, which was um, an atlas of the English counties with a very detailed description. And he was also writing guides for the surveyor's profession. But he was also drawing maps of Ireland, um, quite interestingly, for anyone who works um, on Ireland. Um, and in particular, he was creating this very beautiful map, which is now in the National Archives in London. And it seems that he turned attention to Ireland at a point when he was probably um, in financial difficulty, um, producing a set of maps in 1608 um, for Cecil. This particular map, for example, um, is one that now uh, very much um, includes um, a strong representation um, of the landscape of Ireland, placing it in its context on its side with the frame, for example, um, which was made up basically of a scale um, to enable locations on the, on the map to be found. And that cross relates to a survey, which is now in the National Archives in London, um, so that we can learn a little bit more about why it was being produced. That survey in turn tells us, for example, that it was being directed by Norden to Salisbury. Um, it, for example, notes how it may therefore please your Lord to take in honourable part that which is done which may in some measure answer your honourable's desires, then being observed all the principal towns and the most part of the chief castles, forts, earldoms, baronies, seigneuries and territories with the names of the men of the kingdom. So you can see that it is very much a um, sort of aimed at letting him understand the landscape of Ulster at a point in time when they're beginning to think about plantation. It's also one that includes huge information um, on the physical and cultural landscape, and one which in turn includes information on forts. And so the big map tells you where the forts are, and then you can go to the survey in the National Archives to find some of these representations of forts. Um, I just included two, uh, Monaghan and Charlotte, for no particular reason other than um, to show you, but these are maps that, again, seem to have been part and parcel um, of the original state collections and that would have in turn very much been um, part and parcel um, and based on some of the earlier drawings by Richard Bartlett. So it just gives you a sense of the ways in which he was actually using materials at the time um, and very much looking at trying to understand Ireland as we headed towards plantation. Of course, that drive towards plantation grows um, over the ensuing couple of years, particularly as plans for plantation emerged. And some of Ireland's most famous maps, I suppose, that are replicated in museums across the country come from um, the 1609 Bodley survey, which was sent back to Salisbury. So we know that this particular survey, for example, was the one 
that correlated to the initial request um, for a detailed map survey of Ulster to be produced. So that readily and by the eye, the known bounds of every county might be discerned, the church lands distinguished from the temple, the shares for the undertakers to be laid out with their apparent limits, according to certain conceived proportions of different quantity of goodness or badness to be specified. So we know that these particular maps um, are the very ornate collections like this one of Dungannon. We've 28 of these surviving for the Ulster Plantation. Uh, there is a couple of copies um, here in Trinity for Donegal. The originals don't survive. But we do know that in terms of these, these were to be the maps that helped to basically locate what areas of land were going to be given to the undertakers, to the servitors, and to the deserving Irish natives within the landscape. So they become effectively the building blocks of the plantation in Ulster. I've argued elsewhere very much about these being a tool of plantation, um, because that move really to that large-scale barony map for the first time gives England a really strong insight into a province that they knew very little of by the turn of the 17th century. The detail of the survey was enhanced by the incorporation of the portions um, of the plantation on the townland basis, which become, of course, that core element of plantation geography in Ulster. So that they become a very strong tool in helping us to understand how the physical and cultural landscape of the province begins to change. The inclusion, for example, on the maps of certain features also gives us an indication um, of what was of interest to the new settlers in Ireland. So in the barony of Dungannon, which you could say is the heartland um, of the O'Neills, um, the interesting feature, for example, which is left in place, is the small representation of Dungannon Castle in the corner, signalling that this is probably going to be a building that's retained and used by um, someone within the plantation. We know in turn um, that other castles and churches, for example, are depicted across the rest of the maps, but very little of any other type of architecture. In turn, the physical landscape is included in great detail because, of course, they want to know the goodness and the badness of the land. Where is going to be a viable estate and where is not? So the brown obviously indicating the bogs, which are plentiful in Ulster, um, the, the green for the church lands. Um, we have mountains being represented, and we can also see features like the rivers to enable us to see um, how, for example, drainage is going to be a factor. We also have lots of forests being included. Of course, these maps have been discussed at great length by John Andrews, as some of you may know, in a 1974 study, and he looked very much at their context and their use by administrators at the time. But one of the complicating factors in understanding this survey was the way that they were actually, I suppose, treated by archivists um, in the intervening years. Because in fact, these maps were separated from their original location. And it's only been in the last number of years that the National Archives actually found um, some of the accompanying material, which tells us a little bit more about how they were actually being used. For example, one of the letters is from Sir Thomas Ridgway to Sir Robert Cecil, in which he effectively addresses this set of maps to him. May it please your Lordship, the maps of the six Ashita counties besides the Derry, being but now newly bound up in six several books for His Majesty's view and the light of the intended plantation. I humbly send them here with all unto your honour, with like humble desire to receive some advice from your Lordship by Mr. Norton or otherwise, 
where there I shall down, set down in plain leaf at the forefront of each book the contents of the same shire in the very form of the enclosed summary. Now, unlike his father, we've no direct evidence that Cecil used them in that there's no handwriting on them. But we can probably get a sense that he would have certainly have seen them given they were addressed to him and given how beautiful, I suppose, the collection it is, we can assume that they would have been, um, they would have been given to him in some shape or form. But again, it shows us just how much, for example, um, the, the Sir Robert Cecil, like his father, was relying on some of these maps to help him understand what was happening in Ireland. And that reliance um, is also evidenced by the fact that this particular map survives at Hatfield, which is, again, looks very like nothing on earth, but it actually is a map that is the base map for that survey um, in the National Archives because it includes basically the six Ashita counties and shows all the baronies within it. So to conclude, um, there is little doubt that maps played a very significant role in informing the Cecils about Ireland's geography and highlighting their specific concerns throughout the interaction with, uh, with the country. While the use of maps by statesmen in early modern Ireland um, has been discussed as length in the literature, the particularly active use of them by the Cecils is unrivaled. Burley's championing of maps in the late 16th century seems to have contributed to that growth of map consciousness that Barber describes. Maps of Ireland were very little known or were not known before this point um, in, at all to most people, while maps of the regions were fewer in number. The rapid growth of maps from the 1580s onwards, I think, can be attributed to the need for that strong visualisation of landscapes to assist administrators like Burley in understanding locations in Ireland. Furthermore, the maps offer a very unique snapshot of a changing landscape, changes that were often directed by these administrators, many of whom had never had the opportunity to see the country themselves. So as a result, they become the tangible evidence of how the changes that they directed were being introduced into the landscape, offering us evidence of how statesmen and the use of maps quite often became tools to promote uh, 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 their own agendas, um, but also to promote the cartographic agenda in my mind. Um, we know that Sir Robert Cecil, for example, used plantation maps um, very much to give him um, a strong sense um, of the landscape in conducting business transactions and in furthering the overall understanding of plantations. So in reading the maps, their annotations, their inscriptions, and in viewing their original surveys, it can be judged, I think, um, that uh, Sir William and Sir Robert Cecil themselves very much become probably the most foremost proponents of mapping in Ireland. So thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, we, this was uh, dealing with both Cecils. We now have only Cecil the Younger, I think, in the next paper, which is given by Professor Hiram Morgan from University College Cork received his PhD at Cambridge and has been at UCC since 1996. He has a whole list of books, Tyrone's Rebellion, Political Ideology in Ireland, Information and Media Through the Ages, The Battle of Kinsale, Great Deeds in Ireland, Ireland 1518. And uh, in addition to his other accomplishments, um, he's also a, a co-founder of History Ireland, so a great effort to uh, bring history more to the public. His talk today is entitled In War and Peace, Sir Robert Cecil, or Salisbury's 
uh, Irish policy, 1594 to 1612. Uh, well, uh, thank you everybody uh, for being here and uh, thank uh, Kieran and everybody uh, in the uh, Cecil and Burley Foundation for uh, having this event about the Cessnes and Anne. Uh, and it's, uh, it's really long overdue, this event, uh, uh, to say the least, to discuss the Cecil connection with Ireland. Uh, and I have the honour today to discuss Robert Cecil and Ireland, uh, who, who makes a, a, a major impact. And so to start off with what I just call the Cecil succession, and it's just a small digression to start with, is it's often forgotten, but Burley's eldest son by his first marriage, here deserves mention, Sir Thomas. For nothing else than he made a trip to Ireland in 1589, and many leading figures entertained Sir Thomas, and it was feared by the rest of the family that he was being taken advantage of, because he was a bit of a spendthrift, considered a bit of a dunderhead, um, not politically astute. Some were touting him as a future Lord Deputy of Ireland, uh, but he was alienated from his father at this point. Um, <laughs> but it is interesting, he makes a visit, um, whereas neither Robert nor William ever come to Ireland. Um, so that's uh, Burley's eldest son by his first marriage. But 21 years after Thomas, Robert had been born in 1563, the male <laughs> issue of Burley's second marriage. And as has been already referred to, Robert is educated at John's uh, Cambridge, like his uh, father. He has time at Inns of Court. He does a sort of truncated uh, grand tour where he just goes to France and Sorbonne. Uh, but in 1591, he's named Privy Council and Knighted. 1593, he became more or less co-secretary with his father. 1596, he's principal secretary. From 1597, when his father, Lord Burley, is bedridden, uh, Robert is then in the driving seat. And really, Burley's greatest success was getting Robert into that position. No doubt about it, getting that succession. 1598, um, then Robert succeeds his father's pretty soon. And then in 1608, uh, he becomes Lord High Treasurer and was also Earl of Souls. Another thing worth noting is that there's several important Cecil secretaries in Ireland. Uh, Cecil's own secretary, Michael Hicks, and other members of the Cecil Secretariat have a hand in the various papers. Henry Maynard, whom Robert shared with Burley in his last years, then Simon Willis to 1602, and then Dudley Norton, who's Robert's secretary for Irish causes 1608 to 1612. Now, the first major thing I have to look at are the causes of the war in Ireland, this big conflagration in Ireland, the so-called Nine Years' War or Tyrone's Rebellion. It consumes uh, a lot of English government treasure and people at the end of the 16th century, costs two million pounds, huge sum, nearly bankrupts England. In the causes of the war, uh, first of all, Hugh O'Neill, Earl of Tyrone, he alleges that there was a Cecil plot involving Burley and Fitzwilliam to have him cut off, that they allegedly encompassed his death. 
to have him arrested, arrayed, and executed as a traitor. That, in fact, is a smokescreen by O'Neill, who's an amazingly wily character. He's the Machiavellian of Machiavelli. And he only comes from the Bulls of Ulster, not from some Renaissance Republic. And that is one of O'Neill's throwaway lines to put the state on a back foot and attract alternative support from the Earl of Essex. Now, of course, state actors soon afterwards did wish to have Tyrone arrested, but at the very outset, um, that was not the case. But soon after, when he is more or less planning rebellion, plotting or working vicariously through the likes of Maguire and Cormac McBarn as his proxies, he is effectively in rebellion. And then they do want to arrest him. But he, there's no separate plot against Cuny and Earl of Thoreau. But there is the bigger question of corruption. And in particular, bribery in a push against Gaelic Ireland and Gaelic Ulster in particular. An underlying cause here was the propensity of officials, particularly Lord Deputy Fitzwilliam, to take bribes as the Gaelic lordships in Ulster were dismantled, beginning with the McMahons in Monarch. Policy was becoming increasingly <coughs> skewed towards the likes of Sir Henry Bagley and was not quite so even-handed as it had been under Sir John Kerr. The big question was, were Burley and then Cecil, who was a merchant and secretary, as secretary in this, were they letting, why were they letting it happen? Because Fitzwilliam and Bagley were effectively their clients and they were, Things were to be were being left rip in Ireland and Ulster in particular. And the other side of the coin is like, were they at the end of the day getting a cut and all this? And that is something you just can't tell. But there is the interesting example uh, from 1590. And there's these are rare instances, the issue of corruption, an issue from, and it's called what I call the Bingham example. A case in point is the grant of the Abbey of Athlone in 1590. After receiving the grant, Sir Richard Bingham, Governor of Connaught, wanted to give Robert Cecil a gift of 300 pounds as a thank you to Burley. Bingham wrote to Burley when Robert refused to take the money upon urging the receipt of the gift. So why wouldn't Robert take the money? Well, the problem is Bingham is regarded as being of a different faction. Maybe that's the reason why. But the attempting to give the money to Robert is interesting nonetheless, as it was through relatives, wives and servants that bribes were usually handled. This was how it was done in the case of Fitzwilliam. And of course, Robert at this point was not yet an officer of the crown in 1590. But there's, there's no way to be certain of these things. But anyhow, regarding the Bingham's, their quest in turn for the Abbey of Boyle in subsequent years would seem to avoid it, would seem to involve similar approaches to Burley and his sons. The other issue of corruption and the cause of the war is the so-called search for concealed lands in Ireland. This was another cause of conflict, but it was a secondary one, but it had been developed in Ireland in the 1590s as a search for concealed lands. This prying into land titles being undertaken by adventurers such as Richard Boyle and Patrick Crosby was upsetting many land occupiers in Ireland. 
This program of resumption was a profitable scheme run by Burley and his son from England. Robert Cecil subsequently rued its effects and sought to curtail the abuse, but the policies on settling effects were really only felt in Connacht, the Midlands, and Munster. And even then, it was not the primary cause of the war spreading to those parts of Ireland. So there are two of the culprits in all this mess, uh, Hugh O'Neill Earl of Tyrone uh, and uh, Sir William Fitzwilliam, who is a relative of, uh, uh, or uh, an in-law of uh, the Burmese, uh, a Northamptonshire uh, general. The next issue as the war uh, develops are Burley's letters to his son Robert, 1593-1998. One quite general cause of the war is that we've now had two figures involved, Burley and Fitzwilliam, who had just simply been too long in government and had become relatively complacent. But Robert was now about to inherit this mess, created really by the family firm, I would say, if you consider Fitzwilliam to be part of the family firm. I think he was. One of the interesting documents in this regard, which sheds light on this, are private papers which Burley sent to his son in the last five years of his life as Robert was taking charge of affairs. These are in Cambridge, MS, EE315. And they've been recently edited in the Camden series by Billy Akers. The unfolding disasters apparent in the revelation to them of accounting regularities, abuses in the army, and a host of other administrative and tactical errors in that. There's also great one-liners in it, particularly from Burlow. He says, I continually fear evil disasters. And also he uses bogland and boglish for Ireland and, and Irish. Which, sure. uh, I, this is a private correspondence, by the way, with his son. But it is relevant to that the Burley and Robert partly contributed to the situation themselves by having Sir John Norris returned from the continent and appointed as general in Ireland, hence dangerously dividing the government of Ireland when Russell, who has, has newly arrived as Lord Deputy. One result of this, which was on a work until I looked at the Bill Akers edition, was that Russell refused to let, as a result, refused to let Burley see his letters written to the Queen. But Robert, of course, got sight of them because he had to read them out to the Queen. Uh, William Russell, the new Lord Deputy, not, makes a huge mistake in not arresting O'Neill at the outset of his deputyship. And then goes and attacks Fake McHugh in, in Wicklow. Very bad tactical And this is to John Norris. It has this tag, the Kelly Gallery, on it. That's because I identified the portrait for the Kelly Gallery. It's one of the few times I've made money out of this game. Um, they're in Santa Barbara, California. So I had part of the portrait. Uh, so, One of the last major acts of Burley's, uh, the increasingly ill Burley, was in April 1595 when he drafted the proclamation proclaiming Tyrone as a traitor. Ironically, the document was translated into the native Irish of Bogland, native language of Bogland. 
I said, now it had to be proclaimed against O'Neill in both Irish and English. The proclamation asserted that Hugh O'Neill aspired to be a prince of Ulster, that he had stirred up others in his cause, and he should be accepted as the principal traitor and chief author of this rebellion. And for propaganda causes, it went on uh, to say that to bring up again the alleged bastardry of his father and with his entire, Hugh's own entitlement to the earldom. Now, in fact, what happened as a result of this was Robert was to spend his next eight years trying to undo this act, this proclamation. When O'Neill tendered his submission later in the year, Cecil drew up a memorial of certain conditions to be offered to the Earl of Tyrone as a basis uh, for his readmission to obedience. And as a result of that, then Cecil was subsequently heavily involved in negotiations with Tyrone and O'Donnell for a compromised peace early in 1596. By this, in which the Cecil clan, Sir John Norris was one of the main government commissioners, the Ulster Lords were to receive their part. However, the Irish distrusted these concessions and decided instead to make an alliance with Spain. They were probably right to do so. Sir Geoffrey Fenton, the other commissioner, and now the main linchpin with Cecil in Anglo-Irish relations through thick and thin, said privately that the Crown hoped as soon as possible to undermine their uh, hitherto uh, unwanted unity, and to, to pick them off one by one. So the next issue I come on to is what uh, Robert is doing then in 1598. When Robert, uh, and this is the issue of uh, another thing I want to bring out, it comes in at certain points in this whole uh, discussion, is the censorship expenses view of the state of Ireland. In 1598, there was an attempt to publish Edmund Spencer's View of the Present State of Ireland at a time when Robert Cecil traveled over to France in an effort to negotiate a peace with Spain. The time that it happened makes it an obvious maneuver by Essex and his friends to involve Essex in Irish policymaking while Cecil was absent and his father was bedridden. When Cecil returned, the volume already entered in the stationer's register was spiked. This was certainly done to thwart the designs of Essex, who would thereby have gained a purchase on Irish policy and Irish patronage, and an opportunity to dig the dirt on policies that the Cecils had become identified. Now, I don't think that the censorship of Spencer's view was done to avoid any beastliness to the Irish. Indeed, Cecil's clans, uh, Robert Cecil's clans, George Carew in his post-concealed West Cork campaign, and Sir Arthur Chichester during his campaign at East Ulster engaged in such atrocities, and they weren't condemned by Cecil. One of the interesting things here is that Cecil in 1600 annotates a document which advocates similar Spencerian methods as, I like no such barbarism. But to my mind, what Cecil was worried about was providing free counter-propaganda in the court of international public opinion, which would see England being tarred with the black legend, like the Spaniards in South America, and indeed in Holland. 
I would say, therefore, that England's reputation was the other reason for preventing the views of publication. Because this is exactly how the view was later used by Philip O'Sullivan in his Catholic history, published in Lisbon in 1620. Ironically, O'Sullivan was under the mistaken belief that Cecil had written the view. The copy of the anonymous view that reached O'Sullivan in Spain had been found by members of a post-war Irish delegation while waiting to meet Cecil and had been transcribed by them. So we now come to the Essex debate. Or what, what one Scottish football manager called squeaky bum time uh, for England and the Tudor regime. And this is really how it is apparent uh, that what happens, not only Texas, but Robert in due course as this thing unfolds. When Essex famously overreacted and touched his sword in an argument with the Queen in the Privy Council in uh, June 1598, when Irish appointments were being discussed, it appeared Essex had really um, shot his bolt, that he had overdone himself completely. And then he writes a letter, uh, can it prince's error? However, soon afterwards, the English are defeated at the Yellow Fort. And that is a Cecil failure because that's a Bagnell operation. And it also compromises Foreman, who is also uh, a Cecil, um, part of the Cecil connection. The Yellow Ford defeat coupled the same month with the death of Burley sees a Essex comeback. The first sign of this was the appointment of Sir Richard Bingham as Marshal of Ireland to replace Bagnell and the appointment of Spencer as Sheriff of Cork. And then following that, an investigation into Fitzwilliam. In desperation, then, there is a murder attempt to, on Tyrone, led by Captain Lapley. Uh, and it's essentially rallies operation, but Cecil knows about it. And that operation is thwarted in October uh, 1598. But I think that is desperation on their part because they see that Essex is going to get appointed because after the rapid extension of the revolt across Ireland, including the sudden uprising against the monster plantation, as a result of that, Essex comes uh, to Ireland with the biggest army ever to arrive in the country. However, as it turned out, all Robert has to do, and the other rivals of Essex, is even though they're accused of failing to send the long promise Lock Foyle expedition behind Irish lines, which uh, Anne Lee uh, referred to, they really only have to wait it out to see the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland's government collapse in it. But however, a bigger crisis now follows. Uh, there's Essex, and there, this is a contemporary. Uh, image of the supposed meeting at the Ford between uh, Essex and O'Neill and in Latin, uh, the sons of iniquity act craftily. They're allegedly conspiring, at least in that image. 
what I'm going to focus on is Robert Sess's speech in the uh, Star Chamber. One of the most interesting Robert Sesson documents comes from November 1599. It relates to Ireland. Uh, he is delivering with all this a high level of briefing. Privy councillors are talking to other notables who are going to go back into the showers because libels have been circulated accusing privy councillors and Robert Cecil in particular of deliberately hampering and bringing down Essex, who is now under arrest, house arrest. The libels include references to crooked ways and secret, in other words, to Cecil's hunched back, or, and of course, his official position as set, and had lines such as pretty rubbish lines, that Robert art glory with his tongue dipped in water from Nimble's throne, whatever that's supposed to mean. But all of this rhymed Robert big time. And this speech is fascinating. So in the speech, he denounces the clandestine writers as libelers, railers, and sons of devils. He said they'd caused evil report of Her Majesty against herself and her counselors and servants. What other purpose have they herein but to fill the rude sort with lies and stir up careless men into contempt of state and the more common sort into sedition? And this whole thing, it's a bit of a rant by Robert Cecil, but I think it's a, a very interesting and informative because it, that's exactly what it is. It reflects fears of civil discontent in England over the burdens of fighting in Ireland. Cecil's growing frustration about Irish policy, a huge need to justify himself, and even the possibility of Ireland being lost, or maybe that Ireland is already lost. First of all, there's this explanation to this conference of what his Jehovah is. He says, two things there are that are proper unto me and inseparable from me. One that I profess place whereby I am certified of matter of advertisement and I'm to give dispatch. Where the answer is required, though in this business, that's the Essex business in Ireland, I assure you nothing ever passed but was equated first to the rest of my lords at the Privy Councils. So my place in this urges me to speak what I know hath passed. One other obligation is upon me, and that is greater than the former. I, though unworthy, have been vouchsafed the favour and grace to be specially used and made acquainted with secret counsels and privy to Her Majesty's purpose in the action undertaken. And that is a key line. Privy, secret counsel and privy to Her Majesty's purposes. This double obligation being upon me how shall I declare my zeal and affection, even in that which goes against my heart, I protest to you from my heart. So this is rather convoluted at the end. It's special pleading, but it's, it's sort of a how dare they moment. How dare they question me as the principal secretary of the queen. And from this, uh, you can see this authoritarian or even absolutist streak that you can see 
that the principal secretary to the Queen, you can see why uh, Cecilin and his friends have a problem, or Essex and his friends have a problem with Cecil and his uh, uh, connection with the Queen as Secretary of State. Other people, of course, counsel the Queen as well, but they have a real problem with Robert Cecil's rule, a sole uh, connection between administration and the Queen. Just a moment. So we now go on to the main part of the speech. And in this, <coughs> Robert evinces a concern, not for the causes of the conflict in Ireland, but the cost of the conflict in Ireland. And I, I read this out because it's always relevant. And it, 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 involves so much of what we've been talking about today. In the late designs for Ireland, I was both a divisor and advisor. And if the direction had been followed and an execution answerable to the councils that were taken with plans of Essex to go to Ireland, Ireland had not been in the state as it has now come to. I know that before this action was undertaken, it was said that Ireland was lost by dripping and spurring supply. Her Majesty's treasure went but by handfuls. All was lost in that things were not royally performed. For the state of Ireland will, I will say this, till within five years, Her Majesty held Ireland in as good as terms as I would have desired, and as well as any of her predecessors held it. So what has gone so badly wrong? For I pray you, what would you have the Queen do? Should she make a conquest of all Ireland again? Then must she also utterly root out all the blood and race of that people and planted anew for as long as any of them were left living, they would never live in any other fashion. And do you think it has been easy for the Queen of England to set the King of France, Henry IV in his kingdom, to protect all the low countries, to encounter the King of Spain with all his forces and to have her money spent and treasure in conquering Ireland? So, the huge prestige, but also, of course, you can see that the full range of England's responsibilities and what the Queen was spending for money. The revenue of that kingdom was never above 13,000 yearly to the Queen, and the charge of it continually has been much more. Some people will speak and tell of the great revenue that the Crown of England hath out of Ireland, and how Ulster has yielded itself 30,000 yearly. But these are fables of old models for it, and such other fitter for legenda era orea than to be written in any history. Therefore, to speak of Ulster and what loss it is to suffer Tyrone to have it. For my part, I would he had it, so that the Queen had the respite with as little charge as hitherto she held it. For I dare speak of Her Majesty's charge that since 88, these wars of Ireland, France, and the Low Countries and other services have cost her four and 20 hundred thousand pounds. And this whole passage, it reflects on the lectures of Spencer and all the things that they were debating and bringing up. And it also looks forward to the famous talks made at the end of Queen Elizabeth's reign about the cost of her wars and the cost of the war in Ireland. But also crucially, it indicates a willingness on Cecil's part 
to compromise regarding the war against Trump and interest. But the document also indicates a fear about excessive claim. He denied that he'd given any private directions or used any interests of his own. That he had not crossed uh, the public de deliberations in relation to that. That whatever was being claimed by the libelers and elsewhere, that the Earl of Essex had sufficient men and money to execute the design that he had set out to achieve, but he had simply not carried out the objective by failing to attack the chief rebel in Ulster, who, quote, had sat, sat in his chariot as disasters unfolded for Essex's army elsewhere in Ireland. Now, about the book above, Cecil says, I have heard my Lord of Essex, she said, if he had money, Ireland had not been lost. I do not think he would say so. The interesting thing here, was there a palpable fear towards the end of 1598 that Ireland was already lost? And here we one, one has to think of the loss of Calais in 1558 and a fear that the end of Queen Elizabeth's reign might be blighted in the same way as Mary's had been. Uh, since my Lord's return, that's Lord, Lord Essex's, what is the combat state of Ireland now more desperate than ever before? Cecil reminded the audience that Essex had been expressly forbidden from leaving his post in Ireland until another had been appointed instead. And he protested that had Essex stayed in post a few weeks longer, a replacement would have been made. But more importantly, as things were coming down the track, Cecil also rejected claims that Essex's detention following his unwarranted return had scuppered peace prospects now, following the famous meeting at the board on the border of Ulster. Indeed, Cecil referred in his speech to O'Neill telling the intermediary Sir William Warren soon after Essex's departure in late September about a new attack, attack, new attack, new approach that O'Neill was going to attack, take. And that's what I've called in my writing, uh, O'Neill's faith and father love approach. And about this, uh, Cecil says, his Confederates disliked of the peace. He will have the name of O'Neill, the generation of a blacksmith that goes back to the proclamation, a name forbidden by Act of Parliament, now set up again, pretends matter of religion, that he will have it free for all men, and objects as tapes do that none in that kingdom should suffer for their conscience. Whereas in that kingdom, it's well known that the laws are not for religion as they are in England, to receive a priest or hear a mass in Ireland is no felony. That's uh, a bit special feeling as well. But anyhow, in spite of the Essex arrest, Cecil, with the Queen's backing, was pursuing a compromised peace in Ireland. And given the many domestic and international concerns and considerations, it's hardly surprising that Cecil was doing so. Ignoring the utterances of O'Neill to Essex, that Cecil had tried to 
have been poisoned. Secretary Cecil now sent reassurance to Tyrone via Warren, uh, insisting that Cecil had been aware of um, Bagnell's malice towards him and tried to temper, and also that he had in earlier negotiations in 1596 tried to find a solution when working through Norris. And we also know from surviving notes of Cecil's that Cecil's behind the scene was taking stock of land holding and crown rentals across Ireland in the hope of finding concessions to O'Neill and his confederates. However, such a compromise was now out of the question because O'Neill was now taking another course. And this was, had all become redundant when O'Neill issued his proclamation to the Palesmen and his articles to be stood upon by, uh, in November and December 1598. And the extent of these demands were from an English uh, standpoint, of course, impossible. And Cecil famously endorsed the document, the articles, Utopia. Simply not possible and never, never left. And then this is the seditious libel. Seditious libel sent by Tyrone to the Lords and Gentlemen of the Peel and Anna. And uh, seditious libel is not really, uh, it is a full proclamation. And, uh, and as the English note, it signed at the top like a prince, as they refer to him, like a prince of Piedmont. Because monarchs are sovereign signed documents or proclamations at the top. The interesting thing is that there was not an attempt to reply to O'Neill's proclamation. The response of the English government to O'Neill's new departure was, of course, to decide to fight O'Neill and Cole to a complete submission. Compromise was now impossible, and hence Montjoy was sent to fight an all-year-round war to surround the Irish by garrisons and to starve them out. But in the meantime, Cecil thought about countering O'Neill's propaganda. O'Neill's proclamation to the Peel's men in November 1599 had called upon them to join a Gale the Gaelic Confederates in a common fight for religion and country against English barbarism. And that proclamation, as I said, had been denigrated as a, by the state as a seditious lie. So the state now tried to write a reply or thought about writing a reply to O'Neill's proclamation. Uh, citing traditional ideas of obedience, Bishop Jones of May drafted a long diatribe against disturbers of the public peace, attempting to use the Pope's excommunication of Queen Elizabeth to animate their cause. But more interestingly, in England, another response was drawn up and annotated by Cecil and Lord Treasurer Buckhurst. It purported to come from the honest Catholic Lords of the Pale. It made the claim that they were not being pressed or discriminated by England as regards their consciousness or for their religious practices, and turned the tables on a man questioning his religious motives and commitment. The interesting thing here is that 
there was a model already to hand by Burley, the document he had written after the defeat of the Spanish Armada, based on the idea of a trumped up discovery of a letter supposedly written by a patriotic Catholic priest to the ex-Spanish ambassador. And that was Burley's 1588 copy of a letter sent out of England to Don Bernardino Mendoza. That was the model for this attempted reply to O'Neill's uh, proclamation. The interesting thing is that the state having drafted those doc two documents, now decided to make no response, realizing to do so might amplify the Irish message by giving it what Maggie Thatcher once called the oxygen of publicity. Um, and of course, also it had, in the interim, it had appeared that it, Palesmen whom they so long feared were proving unsympathetic to Tyrone's agenda. Furthermore, there was also fear that such a public dissemination or discussion would raise the issue of religious toleration in Ireland. The idea of putting it on a firmer footing, as had just been done with the Edict of Nantes in relation to French humans. The problem here though was, and indeed the big difference, was that Irish Catholics were not a minority, but the overwhelming majority. And any such concession, of course, would be hard to rescind and would be far more far reaching and the state would be unable to control the situation. So that was how it was. So I'm now a major war, a major and very costly war has to be finished. Winning the war against Tyrone proved very expensive. The disastrous Essex episode had already cost a small fortune. Now money had to be found for the hugely expensive garrison policy, which included Dokra's expedition, finally sent behind Irish lines to look for. And then the future might needed to cover the staving off of Spanish intervention and conceal. Part of the solution was at the basement of the Irish currency. This scheme of lowering the percentage of silver and hard coins was initiated by proclamation in May 1601. It was the idea of Sir George Curry, the treasurer of Ireland, who managed to convince Cecil of its utility. And here, of course, one cannot help thinking as in the case of the victualling and supplying of troops in Ireland, is that of course there are plenty of opportunities to make money on the sidelines of such a venture. At any rate, the expedient was in the first instance a success. Cecil told Mountjoy shortly after the Spanish landing, if this medicine of mixed money had not served to stop the present range of expense, which that kingdom forfeit, England could not have endured six months supply without being driven to search those desperate means to raise monies here, which would have brought us little better than a rebellion in this kingdom, i.e. in England. However, whilst the scheme may have prevented civil unrest and bankruptcy in England, it did though cause disruption and chaos in Ireland, keeping more pre pressure at a critical time on the Irish clouds. It was a close run thing, unfortunately for England, it never went any further than the recency protests and revolt of April and May 1604. 
It is claimed in several papers in Cambridge that the scheme between 1601 and September 1603 saved the crown 202,047 pounds, 11 shillings, seven days and three quarters a day, whatever that is. Basically, it had saved the crown just 10% of the overall exchequer cost of the war, which I told you. But it did come at a crucial time. This information doesn't come, and you'd expect it to come from the famous end of brain uh, talks in Cecil, in Cecil papers at uh, Hampton House. And there's two documents, the expenses of the Tyrone Rebellion and the cost of the Queen's Wars throughout her reign. But rather the information about the saving comes from Cambridge University Library, MSKK 115, entitled A Collection of Letters and State Papers Relating to the Rebellion and Ireland in the Reign of Elizabeth. References such as my master's letter to Sir John Norris indicate that this was a special generated collection. Its two volumes contain over 280 folios stretching from 1590 to 1603 and covers a whole range of Irish matters, in particular dealing with Tyrone, and particularly the 96 negotiations, key letters written by the Queen, army and revenue matters. These documents, mostly copies, were presumably done in the early years of James for a new secretary of Cecil's taking on Irish business, because these are two big volumes of copies. If so, the documents re regarding Ulster were soon irrelevant, because the flight of the Earls changed the whole political scene around. Following James's accession, Cecil, though he had helped James to the throne, was not completely dominant. And indeed, incidentally, Thomas Cecil, Lord President of the North, between 1599 and 1603, presumably came in very handy for his half-brother in that transition. So the Dunderhead brother was a help in the end, I suspect. For the two years following Mellifont, Montjoy, as Lord Lieutenant, continued to have a role in Irish affairs, and that helped temper action against the role. However, after Mountjoy's disgrace and fall, resulting from his relationship with Penelope Rich, Cecil's dominance of Irish affairs increased with Davies, and particularly Chichester becoming Lord Deputy as his agents. The key factor in the flight, it seems to me, was Cecil's orchestration of the prosecution of the gunpowder plot conspirators. And before that, his similar tactics in dealing with Essex's trial. From the latter, from Essex's trial, Tyrone knew how Cecil and Francis Bacon, now back in James's favor by 1607, had twisted events in Ireland against him and against Essex in particular. We know from the state papers there was no intention of prosecuting Tyrone in England in 1607. There is one reason, that is one reason the government was surprised by the flight. The other being that they had no intelligence of it. Nevertheless, it is entirely possible that Davies and Chichester 
with the allegations being already made by St. Lawrence, could have concocted something against O'Neill once he went over to London. Thus, O'Neill himself having cried wolf several times already, and with the king, king seemingly in Cecil's pocket, following Guy Fox's antics, it was better not to take the risk. And so, as a result, a hurried departure from Ulster took place. Finally, the plantation of Ulster. Cecil, now the Earl of Salisbury, thus became the main architect, almost by default, in making a plantation and planning for at least the central part of it in London. It was a massive patronage opportunity for him, but he didn't have it all his own way because there were now many suitors and many of them Scots who were in direct touch with the Queen. One uh, new undertaker, uh, the grantee William Parsons, the grubby surveyor general of Ireland, even called one of his landholdings Cecil Manor. Uh, and the name persists in Clocker Barney till this day in County Tyrone. But not all the applicants got lands. It would be interesting to know how many of the disappointed servitors in Ireland were clan captains of Essex and Mountjoy. For instance, Josiah Bodley, even though he undertook the mapping of the confiscated counties, was one of them. And he complained about being overlooked to Michael Hicks, Cecil's secretary. So at any rate, one way or other, Though Irish matters presented Cecil with some extraordinary difficulties in the 1590s and challenges, we, could, we can say without a shadow of a doubt that he was one English statesman who made a big impact on Irish history, and one which carries with it a significant legacy. Thank you. is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.